Welcome to Hold Up, the podcast where we watch our favorite rom-coms and decide whether they hold up. I'm Carrie Gilbert. I'm Allison Gilbert. And this week we watched Jerry Maguire. And I forgot to look up like when it came out. It came or out. Or any of that. In, don't worry, girl. I got you. It came out in 1996 when we were at the ripe ages of six and eight. I guess you maybe were nine because Oscaries. No. Scratch no. that. I don't know how old we are. It came out in 1996 when we were at the ripe ages of seven and nine to 10. Uh, unsure of the month, but it was Oscar bait. So Carrie was probably 10. Oh, is that a PSL? Mm-mm. Oh, it had that orange color. No, it's just iced coffee. Um, side note, I ordered um, pumpkin almond milk. Um, no carbs, which is not a thing. We are not endorsing eat and drink all the carbs you want. I'm a diabetic. So it's exciting when I can find a pumpkin flavoring that isn't going to spike my blood sugar. And I'm very excited to try it in my iced coffee later, made by Khalifa. Mm. Anyway, that has nothing to do. This you gotta, get, you gotta get one of those like um little whip things so you can whip it and pour it on top of the coffee. Ooh, I ha- I think I have a frother. That's smart. Because what I am trying to do is get a diabetic friendly version of the pumpkin spice cold brew. But I also don't love a sweet coffee anyway. So I don't really want the sweetness. I just want the pumpkin flavor and the frothiness. So what I've been doing, not with pumpkin spice, but I've done it with cinnamon, is just take like whatever your regular milk is that you like, pour in the spice. Like this, I've been doing cinnamon, but you could obviously do a pumpkin spice or like a cinnamon nutmeg combo, clove ginger combo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then froth it and then pour that on. And then it just kind of like seeps into the coffee. The milk I bought is almond milk, coconut milk, pumpkin puree, and then like a pumpkin spice. So I bet if I froth that, nice. that's going to be good. Hmm. Yeah. Also, maybe Should I need to find that. I got it off Thrive. Um, also, if you guys want to, let's, uh, let's try and get some sponsors here. I got it from Thrive Market, um, but it's like a Khalifa Farms thing. So I think you could probably find it at, you know, your local Kroger. I actually think I still have a bottle that left in my fridge from last fall. That's not good. Throw it away. Carrie. It's dare. I guess it's not dairy, but it is. Throw it away. Is it? Probably still fine. Carrie Grindham, Steel Gilbert. Okay. So we should probably talk about Jerry Maguire. This movie came out in 1996. We were seven and nine. I know what years we were born. It has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was written and directed by Cameron Crowe and stars Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger, Bonnie Hunt, Regina King, Cuba Gooding Jr., Jerry O'Connell, Bravo's favorite straight man, um, that other guy, Jay Moore. Mm-hmm. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Um, a child that was never seen again. Um, Kelly Preston. Am I missing anyone? No, there's some other people that like weren't famous at the time that kind of show up in very small roles that then went on to be famous, like Donal Logue and Ainsley Hayes. Um, um, missed Ainsley Hayes, blacked out during that part. We watched it on HBO Max or Go, and uh, it was a very lauded movie at the time. It was nominated for several Oscars and won at least in Cuba Gooding Jr. won Best Supporting Actor for his role as Jerry's only client, a football player. Carrie, what were your predictions? Brad did well. I don't know that I had any predictions. I honestly, like, as I started watching this movie, I was like, I really don't remember this movie very well. I had forgotten Um, that the first 10 minutes are just horrible exposition unexplained it's just a voiceover of him explaining 
what's happening in lieu also, of any sort of creative. I also thought that whole like mental breakdown memo thing came later. Like I thought we got it a little bit into the no it's like we hit the ground right away okay so the premise and a tom cruise is explaining it but we don't know there's no like he's writing a book first it's just a disembodied voice explaining to us why so tom cruise is a sports agent very successful very high-powered sports sports agent who has this kind of like epiphany slash like maybe like burnout breakdown in one of his clients gets a head injury. I think we would now call it a traumatic brain injury and is maybe suffering from some CTE. And his child is like, fuck you, my dad. I don't care if my dad plays sports again. I want my, I want a dad to, I want my dad alive. And that like spirals him into this breakdown. Right. Where he says like, we need to be taking better care of our clients and we need to be providing them more personal um, attention. And like, so he, he says like less clients, um, more personal attention. And he writes this whole memo. He gets it printed at like a Kinko's in the middle of the night and distributes it to like everybody in his office. And of course, like this firm, this sports agency firm that's trying to sports management international. Right. That, no trying, creativity went into naming that. Firm. Um, that's trying to like make a profit is like, fuck, no, that's not what we're doing. And he ultimately ends up getting fired. decides to go out on his own. And Renee Zellweger, who is an accountant at his firm, decides to follow him. And so they've got this like small two-person firm. They fall in love. Um, there's Are also then the side story, not really side story. It's, I would say equally as important is the relationship between him and Cuba Gooding Jr., who plays Rod Tidwell, who is the only client that follows him. And, and it's kind of him. a not a football star. He's kind of known for a, a shitty attitude on the field and sort of being aging. And not uh, a team player. And not he's a team a chip player. On his shoulder. He kind of he's entitled. I would say like he's a little bit entitled. Yes, he believes he's worth more than what he's getting. Although then right. spoiler alert, in the end he gets it. So I guess he is worth that much. When he like plays for the love of the game in some and not for the money. Right. Yeah. That half of the story I very much enjoyed. I his marriage with Regina King. Give me two hours of that. This is just two people in a partnership. <laughs> I love I also love really love the relationship between Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooding Jr. Like their um their interactions and their chemistry is fantastic. They're both, I mean they're both super problematic oh but i was gonna also, say very good actors <laughs> they're also very good actors i mean also I, deeply problematic men both of them yes but they but there's a reason like that they are the reason there's a reason Cuba Gooding jr won an oscar for this movie there's a reason that people talk about this movie as one of tom cruise's better performances like they are both really fantastic in this movie um and they play very well off of each other yes also tom cruise is the figurehead of a very dangerous cult and we do not want to praise him without forgetting that he is the figurehead yeah of a very dangerous cult (laughs) so like in this conversation we're going to have some like like we said their performances are great i think we're going to talk about them both in a complimentary way throughout this conversation 
but we don't want to forget that there have been numerous accusations against Cooper Gooding Jr. and of sexual misconduct and Tom Cruise is the figurehead and spokesperson for a cult that has been accused of heinous things, including kidnapping and torture and sexual assault of both adults and children. So, okay. So here's the other thing. If after this episode comes out, Carrie and I go missing, y'all know why. Just saying, yeah. don't come for me, David Miscavige, because we have six fans, but they're mean and they will find you. They will find Leah Remini. They will get together and they will avenge our deaths. So leave us alone. David Miscavige, a big old allegedly on all of this, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what we do is we acknowledge the good with the bad. I mean, we can, I'm not saying like separate the art and the artist, but there is an extent to which in discussing this movie and whether it holds up in like the movie itself. Right. But we also do want to acknowledge who they are and what they've done, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Look, if we're going to criticize that, then we also have to criticize Cameron Crowe for making the movie Elizabethtown. Like, good people do bad things is what I'm saying. Yes. Just kidding. Obviously, right. the mo- making the also, movie Elizabethtown of is Elizabethtown. not as bad as- So, speaking of Elizabethtown, I feel like we need to unpack... Or maybe not. Like, maybe this is just a thing people know about Cameron Crowe. I, Cameron Crowe loves a story about, first of all, a white man, a problem, a sad, broken white man. But he also, like, there's something, what? Who finds a woman to save him. Yes. There's a lot of, like, although I know, I know we are going to have different opinions about this movie. I feel like there's an extent in this movie to which both of these people are broken, And that's part of why, anyway, we'll get there. But first of all, my point about Cameron Crowe is that I think part of what people relate to is a lot of his movies have this underlying theme of like super like ambitious, successful people who ultimately like discover that that's not, that's not what fulfills them. That like a a family and a community and a home, even if it's it like quote unquote, a smaller life is a more fulfilling life. And like, I, as I was looking through his IMDb, I was like pretty much all, Mm -hmm. all of his movies fit that theme. Um, And that's not, it's not like Cameron Crowe invented that theme, like watch any fucking lifetime or Hallmark movie. And like, that's the theme. You've got but, mail. I just did a rewatch of You've Got Mail and she has the, a line that says, my life is small. Uh, I forget. There's She caveats that with so it's like important, but small. Right. Like she's not insulting her life by saying it's small, but she leads a small life. And I, I think there's something really lovely about, like I really love those kinds of stories because I, I like personally, I am somebody who, when I was younger, thought that my life would look a certain way and thought I needed certain things. And found that in reality, like the things that I want are quote unquote smaller or like, like, and I don't mean smaller as like, as a bad thing. I just mean like, I, my life doesn't, I don't need to be 
like uber successful, like at, at the, you know, kind of like the. You don't need to go down in the history books. Right. Or like have the fast paced, like super glamorous, sexy lifestyle. Like, and I think, and I, and I know I'm not alone in that. And so I think lots no, of people relate to that. <laughs> and so. It's kind of my current uh, life dilemma. Right. And I think lots of people have that. I, I've had, I had that life dilemma. Like I, um, and I, so I think that one of the reasons Cameron Crowe is as successful as he is, one of the reasons his movies are as beloved as they are, Elizabeth Town, the exception, obviously. Um, we're going to have to watch Elizabeth Town at some point, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Although I will say, I'll let you finish, but I uh, finish and then I'll finish what you're saying. I'm not, Taylor, I'm going to let you finish. Taylor, I'm going to let um, you finish. Problematic uh, men. This is this episode is about <laughs> problematic men. Um, no, I just, I think that that's part of why people love his movies as they relate to that. I think that there is something really lovely about that message. And we, and I know you have lots of issues with this movie and we will get to all of that, but I think part of what this is, is like both Rod and Jerry realizing that the money is great and you want to be valued for your work, but at the same time, like having somebody to come home to, having somebody to share your life with having people who love you is ultimately like what is most important. Yeah. Yes. I like that aspect of this movie. I've actually, I insulted Elizabethtown and I've never seen it. And so I want to apologize. I have. It's, it's terrible. Cameron Crowe. I think if we're going to talk about this movie and talk about Cameron Crowe in a wider conversation, he is an extremely prolific director if we're going to talk about rom-com directors the way we talk about richard curtis and nora efron and the like we have to cameron crow is in there so yes yeah. we will at some point watch elizabeth town and i'm not sure it can be classified as a rom-com but maybe for the sake of the trilogy we and for the sake of it's my personal favorite of cameron crow's movies we will also have to watch um almost famous the thing that and say anything. Say anything is Cameron yes. Crowe. And also, inarguably, a rom-com. Yeah. Cameron Crowe is widely credited with uh, at least partially creating the Manic Pixie Dream Girl mm-hmm. in uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst's part in Elizabethtown. Um, he also, I mean, like, she didn't really play this character in Almost Famous, but Zoe Deschanel, maybe the most famous Manic Pixie Dream Girl um, is an important character in Almost Famous. I think the that character in that movie is uh, Kate Hudson. Yeah, I loved Jerry Maguire as a child. It was it was different for me to watch as an adult. I noticed flaws, and apart from like there are things I found problematic, and I also just noticed like writing flaws that that bothered me, especially from someone who I really like, Cameron Crowe. There were a few like just lazy writing moments at one point someone says to jerry hey college buddy in a way that nobody has ever spoken like that like has you ever looked at any of your college friends and said that that's just lazy expositional writing yes (laughs) um and the same with sort of like the beginning like breakdown it's just like a lazy uh uh, expositional voiceover that's never explained or brought back there's no like voiceover throughout this movie it's mm-hmm. just to get out pipe. Um, yeah. There's also an extent to which 
part of the problem with this movie is it's really fucking long. So long. And there's a lot happening. We have lots of different storylines happening. And so like some of, I think some of the laziness comes from that like this movie was trying to do too much. Yeah, they needed to get to shit quickly. Yeah. So they had to sort of, that you had to have a, you couldn't like lay out who he was as a sports agent and then lead up to his breakdown, which should have been like the first act of the movie. But because you have a simultaneous work story with Cuba Gooding Jr. and romantic story with Renee Zellweger, you have these like two parallel storylines that you're trying to tell that obviously, yes, connect to each other. But they're each a movie of their own. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to make this a rom-com, you have to make the Cuba Gooding Jr. role less important. If you want to make this a story about work, you have to make the rom-com secondary. And neither, and they're both the primary storyline of this movie. So it's too long. So there's too much. So in order mm-hmm. to understand where we're going, we have to, like, you have to cut stuff off somewhere and, it, and the writing sacrifices. And in not all the places, I mean, like, again, <laughs> I think he got nominated for an Oscar for this. There are moments of this movie that are, that will go down as some of the best, like help me help you. And like, there are, and uh, uh, you had me at hello. There are writing moments of this movie that are so brilliant. Yeah. The scene between Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooding Jr. Where Tom Cruise is finally confronting Cuba Cuba Gooding Jr. And saying like, you don't play with your heart. Um, Like that scene and Cuba Gooding Jr. like calls Tom Cruise out on his shit about like his marriage and stuff. Like that scene is so beautifully written. The dialogue is so fantastic that it it it's it's almost a little bit jarring that then when you have these like weird writing moments that don't work because as you said, like there are some some moments where the dialogue is so incredibly effective. And. I hate to keep going back to Almost Famous. I don't hate to, I love Almost Famous. And I recently rewatched it. So I have it in my head knowing that it holds up slightly better, although with a very large exception. Um, there, Almost Famous is such a, like so close to perfectly written movie that, it, that I think it's somewhat of a letdown. It's like Cameron Crowe, you know better than to write Hey College Buddy as a line of dialogue fucking ever. Like- he's so much better than that, that it almost felt like notes or something. And he was just sort of like, fuck it. Like, Mm -hmm. and that I think is frustrating because it's like, no, you're an incredible writer. Why is this happening? Right. Yeah. Uh, It's a real, I will say the other scene. And I don't know if this scene, the only scene that got me, I remember as like a teenager watching this movie and crying a lot through it. And I did not have that experience this time, except the, I, I truly felt nothing like this movie made me feel nothing <laughs> except the one exception was in the scene where Rod Tidwell gets hurt and Regina King. And I don't know if it was the writing. I am willing to bet a lot of money that what it mostly was is Regina King is among the greatest living actors we have. And she is watching at home and cannot get anyone to tell her if her husband is dead or alive or why he isn't moving. And her phone conversation with Jerry, where she's, desperately trying to get information through tears is so exactly how a wife or a partner would sound when their loved one is in pain. It is so 
it's the writing of her being like, I need you to, he's like, I'll call you as soon as I can. And she's like, no, you will stay on the phone with me and you will give me information as you, like, it is so written correctly. And her, she was like, so perfectly, it was just such good acting that I was like, see, this is it. This is the moment of the movie that's making me. And I have seen this movie. I know he's about to get up and dance. (laughs) Like I know, but I, you could feel her anxiety. And that was the moment I was like, okay, yes. Uh, this and I now feel something. Thank you, Regina King. I wrote, why did it take Regina King so long to get an Oscar? Oh my God. Because she's fantastic in this movie. So good. She's, I, she's such a good actor. Yeah. And we, she just got an Oscar a year ago. Yeah. She's also very good in that movie, but come on. Yeah. Yeah, that scene, I, I, again, I felt differently about this movie. I really liked this movie. It didn't make me cry at all. There were no scenes where I was like emotional necessarily, but it had emotional impact. I did enjoy this movie. Um, But I do think that 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 scene in particular is just acted so beautifully. Again, both, I mean, she's really kind of stealing the limelight in that scene, but even Tom Cruise is acting in that scene is really quite fantastic. He does a lot of really kind of interesting nuanced work in this movie that I don't expect from him. I don't expect from like Tom Cruise action guy, which I feel like is really who he's become. Um, He's a far more interesting actor than I think he often gets credit for. I actually completely agree with that. And I have a theory that maybe is too flushed out to be on the podcast. You mean not flushed out enough to be Correct. on the podcast? Yes, it's not in any way flushed out. So please feel free to cut at your leisure. Uh, there's a lot of rumors in Hollywood that Tom Cruise is a closeted gay man. And so I wonder if his pivot into like action hero guy from more like nuanced emotional parts is a concerted effort from his team to get away from that rumor. I will not hazard guesses as to whether or not I think it is correct. I will only say that Scientology is a notably deeply homophobic organization. Um, So if it is, if there is any level of truth to that rumor, I think there is an, there is a reason why. And I would not be surprised if that pivot is intentional to try and give him a different kind of, because of the outdated and homophobic stereotype that like a more emotional part is more feminine and therefore, right. You know, yeah. lends to those rumors. Yeah. That's certainly possible. I just, I hadn't at all thought about that until you said like, now we know him as action guy and that's true. So it is, it's curious because I do like him in roles like this. I do like, I do like a more emotional, like early 2000s Tom Cruise. I also Mm -hmm. just wonder if like, we maybe, like, I wonder if like the break, the jumping on the couch breakdown pivot of his career, like really just made it harder to watch him in those roles. Yeah. You know, it's any number of things, but. Yeah. Yeah. There is, I do think there's some extent to which like his persona like his real persona you know turns some people off um and it's 
easier to sort of relate to him when he's doing like a specific thing as opposed to something where you're really more connecting with the character yeah where Um, he needs to be like generic action hero guy that you just sort of like right you root for the action and he's i mean he's very good at action hero guy Mm -hmm. we just jeff and i just recently watched mission impossible which now like feels like yeah now like looks and feels like a very dated movie in terms of like the effects and stuff um but he's very good I mean like doing the action hero thing in that movie like he's he's very good he's very fun to watch it's a fun movie um and that's why they've made like a hundred million of them I forget that I kind of enjoy action movies I saw Free Guy yesterday and I was like this is fun (laughs) it's like this is dumb but I'm happy yeah he's in a he's also in an action movie with Emily Blunt um i've heard great things it's so good it's so good it the it had a stupid name and so people like didn't go see it so then they changed the name i think it's now called edge of tomorrow I that's think it not was what it was always called i think it was called like die die repeat or something like that <laughs> i mean i'm telling you it had a stupid name and then they renamed it um but it's it's really quite good and he's and it, the interesting thing is like he's not the action hero she is you know what scene made absolutely no sense hit me so after they fired him they allow him to go back into his office and call every single one of their clients first of all still work from the office after being fired i wrote down like genuine question does that is that a thing no no it's not a thing first of all i i guarantee that he signed a non-compete when he began working there but the other thing is, like, if you are a partner in a firm like that, they escort you out the door when you like I've worked in law firms where partners have have resigned or have moved on. They literally say, like, OK, thanks. You don't need to stay for two weeks. You may leave now because they because they want to prevent exactly that. And it's crazier because Jay Moore, who like is his mentee that then fires him. So we're like, oh, he's the bad guy. Um, he like takes him out to lunch to fire him in a public place. Then they go back to the office. He lets them go back into his office where they, and it's all for the sake of the scene of them in like competing glass walled offices, like calling all the clients. It's like a high stakesy scene that makes no sense. No sense. Because you want them both like going back and forth, trying to get the same clients, which they're not in the same room. So we could have had that from like Tom Cruise's apartment and Jay Moore being in the office, but okay. It just like, and then so we can leave at the fully end of the day. They let him work a full day. Right. Fully end of the happen. day. Never like, happened. Never happened. Be like, who's coming with me? Only for Renee Zellberger to be like me. Because P.S. She's fallen in love with him after hearing him talk in first class when she was in coach. And I can tell you as the nosiest person alive who's never been in first class, if I could hear conversations in first class from coach, I absolutely would listen to all of them. But that's not how planes work. She's like fully like ear, like fully like listening to their conversation. Like none of this movie understands how actual uh thing. This is like Cameron Crowe has been in film too long because he doesn't understand how like regular jobs or like people flying in regular parts of a plane or how women behave. He doesn't understand any of that. No. Um bless him. He just needed like a normie to be like, "All right, here's how the physics of an airplane sound work 
Right. Or like, no way in hell would they fire this guy. And then they wouldn't even let him walk back in the building. No. Like there's, they wouldn't also like, they take him in a conference room, tell him he was fired and then escort him out of the building. Like there's no fucking way that would have happened. That is a slightly less climactic scene. Yes. But you're right. This is like when dad's like, I want to see a law show about how lawyers actually work. And I have to be like, nobody wants to watch you guys write a brief for six hours. Like nobody wants, he's like, law and order isn't realistic. I'm like, right. Which is why it has 8,000 seasons. And apparently a UK spinoff. I think we have to talk about the women. Yeah. There are four uh, main women in this movie. And yet somehow this movie does not even uh, crawl near passing the Bechdel test. Go ahead, wreck your brain for any scene where any of them, first of all, only two of them speak to each other. <laughs> the women in this movie are Renee Zellweger, who plays his love interest, Bonnie Hunt, who plays her sister. So they do obviously speak to each other a lot. Regina King, who is sometimes in double date scenes with Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, but like the two of them rarely, like I, I had remembered a stronger friendship between the two of them and hardly there. And Kelly Preston, who plays his fiance in a role that can only be described as a male fantasy. Mm-hmm. Literally, she is introduced to us as a character, like in a sex naked. scene, naked in a sex scene on top of him. And her for, among her first lines is, I'd be with another woman for you if that's what you wanted. Not, I'm interested in experimenting with sex with women, but for you, I'd like just a man's idea of what and and then she's tossed aside by him for the more gentler virginal mother just the like the like dichotomy between her character and Renee Zellweger's character and what we're told is an acceptable woman to marry is le problematique yes she uh, does she has a good line that I appreciate granted like we're supposed to think of her as the villain and so I'm not sure the movie has this point of view but like when like his business is falling apart and he because I think I, I think she works for the NFL is my understanding she's is always she's, after they've stopped giving her lines she always just follows Jay Moore around she has no, no more lines but she's still in scenes with Jay Moore in the background or with the owner of the Cardinals. Yes. Um, so I think she works for the NFL is the implication. She's like in marketing for the NFL or something like that. Um, so that's why their jobs overlap and they're at the NFL draft together. And so like his business is falling apart and he goes to her for like support, which I understand, but she is like, I, I still have to do my job. Like you're trying, you're interrupting me and I still have things I need to do. And like, I, it's treated as like villainy, but at the same time, like she's not wrong. Like she's still no. going to do her job. Like you're not making money. Like your partner needs to make some money for you. It's treated as like, she should give up what she's doing and coddle to his breakdown. And it's like, bro, she is working. Right. And like, there's a happy medium there. Like, like she could be like, I, I will be with you. Like as soon as I'm done with this and like, I'm really sorry, you know, like there, she could be a little more supportive, but also like she shouldn't be expected to like stop her doing what she needs to do at her it, job. It's the bad version of the love and basketball scene when his, he's found out his father is 
has had affairs and maybe uh, impregnated a woman outside of wedlock and he goes to Sanaa Latham and she's like, I have to go, I have a curfew, I have to be in bed, except that scene, both of their needs and perspectives are taken into account. And in this movie, it's like, nope, Kelly Preston sucks because she won't give up her, what she needs to do for me. Yeah. The love and basketball scene is like, all right, this is a real problem that sometimes couples face and they both have, uh, they are both right. Right. This movie doesn't have that nuance. No. Uh, And then the other two women are Bonnie Hunt and Regina King, which both women I love and I think are great in this movie. Uh, But, and Bonnie Hunt is constantly like, I don't know, you seem to be moving really fast with this man and maybe you should slow down. And I'm like, I think really we should all take a moment and listen to Bonnie Hunt. (laughs) I want a movie where like Bonnie Hunt and Regina King like help women in shitty relationships and are like leave him like you should leave him because <laughs> I wanted to see those two women interact and I wanted them to give I wanted Renee Zellweger to heed their advice one from a loving sister and one from a woman in a successful and happy marriage I was like these women you should really listen to them they seem to know what they're talking about yeah <laughs> that was the I love story really... of this movie that I rooted for was Regina King and Cuba Gooding Jr and to be fair it's never really threatened but it is yeah. it is it's just like they're not just written as like a happy couple, but they're written as like a partnership of two Mm -hmm. people who like listen to each other. Like, yes, she is very invested in his career as I think like probably a lot of football wives or sports wives feel, but he's also like very loving and attentive to her. He's like, he listens to her advice. He, there's a, there is clear mutual respect. They have a very cute child she manages his career in a lot of ways and he defers to her when she says this is how we're doing this yeah um yeah I will say like and we'll get into the to the Dorothy Jerry relationship and I I have less problems with it than you do I suspect but I will say that the Dorothy Jerry Dorothy is the Renee Zellweger character theirs is the least interesting relationship of the relationships I I was far more interested in spending time with Rod and Marcy, who's Regina King, who plays his wife, and Rod and Jerry and Renee Zellweger and Bonnie Hunt. Like the the ancillary relationships, although I don't know that the Jerry-Rod relationship really can be described as ancillary, as you talked about at the beginning, but the, the relationships other than like the central romantic relationship are far more interesting um the bonnie hunt renee zellweger one i really loved maybe because we're sisters i did think it was weird that one sister had a thick chicago accent and one has a pretty deep texan accent and i would like to unpack how they were raised to know how that happened no accent work was done in this movie they were like bonnie hunt known for being from chicago renee zellweger at this certainly at this point in her career had not lost that texas accent they're sisters Right. We will ask no questions. We will ask no questions. Also, we now know that at least Renee Zellweger is quite adept at accents in one of three Bridget Jones movies. So she could have, I think, I think she could have lost that twang, but no one asked that of her. No. Yeah. Um, um, let's talk about Jerry and let's talk about the romantic relationship in this romantic yeah. comedy. You start. And then I'll, uh, I'll respond. Okay. 
I don't totally, I want to say like, I don't totally hate it. I like, like, but, but, and it starts with her sort of being enamored or infatuated with him. He's nice to her kid. She has a a little kid who I'd also remembered being sicker. I think I mix up this kid and the kid from as good as it gets. <laughs> it's like, this kid's not sick at all. That's not, that kid has too much energy. Like that kid needs just to take some deep breaths and relax. Um, but I always, I think I had mixed him up with the as good as it gets kid who is sickly. Right. This movie is doing a lot, but it does not add a sick kid narrative on top of it. But he's nice to her kid. And I would get, if you're a single mother, like anyone being nice to your kid, uh, you'd, uh, be fall in love with. She is the only one. She is enamored by his memo that he's written, um, about what sports management should be. And so she goes with him. She is an accountant that goes with him and effectively becomes his assistant, um, so that feels like, why did we make her an accountant and then have her do something sort of like not in her field of special skills? He then c- up, shows up at her house drunk one night and tries to kiss her. And the movie attempts to buy it back by him being like, now I feel like Clarence Thomas. You should, you should feel like Clarence Thomas. Cause that's what's happening here. And I, I appreciate the acknowledgement of what is happening but it brings to me as men being like, I can say or do inappropriate things as long as I then say, I know I did it. You're still putting the only person that works for you in a very uncomfortable position. And yes, she is attracted to him. And yes, they ultimately start dating. And I believe that she's attracted to him and I believe she wanted to date him. And so there's no sort of like weird coercion in that. But then we didn't need a scene where he's drunkenly tries to kiss her. Except. I told you I was going to let you finish, but I'm not. <laughs> I think that the one, because I agree, like it's hanky. It's also 96. And so our understanding of workplace politics is. Except we have a pretty good understanding of it. Right. Because Anita Hill made us. Right. And so, we're referencing but, that we have an understanding of it. But we have this scene that precedes that where he tries to kiss her, where she makes it clear that she is going to try and seduce him. And. So I do think like we're giving Zellweger or Dorothy, we're giving Dorothy a level of agency in this whole situation. I, I also think these people are on even footing in terms of their like emotional stability um, and their level or lack thereof of boundaries. Neither of these people have healthy workplace boundaries at all. Um, And so I was not as bothered by him attempting to kiss her as I thought I would be. Didn't need him to be drunk when we were doing it. Didn't need to be in our home with our kids sleeping in the next room. And we didn't need to just have them both be drunk and attracted to each other. I'm fine with that. Have them both be sober and attracted to each other. It like upset me. And then we referenced Clarence Thomas and I was like, acknowledging it doesn't make it better. Now I'm more upset. Acknowledging what you just did without changing your behavior doesn't make it better. Right. I'm with you. I think part of what this movie is trying to tell us though, is like, is to show us like how broken both these people are. And we get that by like his drunken breakdown and her being like, I'm really attracted to a drunken breakdown and I'm attracted to this mess. And her sister being like, this man is a mess. What are you attracted to? And her being like, I, I am. And so I, I get everything you're saying, but like, I, 
also see what this scene was trying to do. For sure. But then that's the other point is either of these people ever really. That's not true. He never really emotionally grows. She does. They end up. Ah. I, I also kind of, yeah, I think she that. then walks it right back down to him. Like I think she tries and that I think if she had truly emotionally grown when he shows up at the end, she'd be like, I'm sorry. I still haven't seen any proof that you like absolutely anything about me. You just want the Rod and Marcy relationship. And I'm here. He, there is never any evidence that he likes her. There is a ton of evidence that he loves her kid. In fact, it said that, that, and she says it in a great line that he loves her kid and he really likes her a lot and never, even in his great, like, we'll go down in the rom-com history books, what is now like a staple rom-com scene, you complete me, you had me at hello scene. It's just a really good speech with absolutely no evidence that he actually has, that he actually does love her. He's just watched Rod and Marcy and their true love and thought, wow, I really want that. I'll go back to the woman I am married to and make that work and in some level it's like okay I guess because you married her so follow through with your commitment but there is nothing right there is nothing that what changes him is watching Rod and Marcy it's not like being reminded of things about her that he actually loves yeah I do think that 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 has always been like the weak point for me in this movie in this rewatch, I think part of what the movie is trying to tell us is that he has intimacy issues, right? Obviously, we know this. He has intimacy issues. And I think what the movie is trying to get at is that he does love her and he doesn't know how to articulate that or he's afraid to show that. And so then ultimately, like, that fear is is broken down. And so we get, so then he's willing to be in this relationship with her. But that's not flushed out well enough. And I agree that it's not made about her enough. Um, and so that does fall flat a little bit. Right. That I do that- like, I get, and I relate to, and I understand the, like, I'm not gonna like fully put myself all in because of the fear and like, but, but then yet again, like, okay. So you get past that without therapy, which is certainly questionable. Um, This man needs therapy. Both these people do like, and then maybe also couples therapy. Like maybe that's the the sequel is like both of these people go into individual and couples therapy. We can only- And maybe some child counseling for the kid just seems like he's really been through a lot because she both hated her husband and then he died. But also it wasn't like a sad, he died. She's like, well, I didn't like him. It's like- And then he died. But it's still like the father of your child died. Like- even if you didn't like him, I bet his kid did. Also, like, I don't know that we needed both. Like, either have him be a shitty guy who left or have it be, like, a sad my husband died situation. Like, the layers of, like, it's almost like they couldn't decide if he was going to be, like, a <laughs> shitty husband and father and just leave them or if he had died. So they're like, por qué no las dos? Like, let's do both. <laughs> yeah, there was. Because it's also, like, it's, like, intimated that he's dead, but it's never, like, super explicit. So you're like, wait, is he dead? I don't no, understand. At one Did point he die? At one point, like, three hours into this seven-hour movie, she's like, my husband is dead. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you for clarifying. Because I was, especially with, like, all the shitty exposition, we could never, we couldn't have earlier gotten a what happened to this man line. Right. Like, we literally, someone says, hey, college buddy, she can't be, like, my dead husband. Like, that was true. Right. Yeah. I'm only... I'm going to start 
uh, calling you like, hey, sister. I'm going to call Ben and Theo when I text them. Hello, nephews. I'm going to call my college friends, college buddies. I'm just going to do that awful movie thing where you refer to the person by their relationship. Um, because that doesn't happen in real life. No. Except men talking about their wives. It's the only time it's like when men want to uh, show that they are married. They're like, my wife. I refer to Jeff as my husband to like people that or like that don't when it's like you're referring to that person. Sure, I refer to you as my sister when people right. like, when I'm with people who don't know your name. I'm not going to be like Carrie, right? But to your yeah, face, I'm never like hello, my older sister, born right. two and a half years before me in Chicago, Illinois. Like, right? <laughs> oh, there's a level of like divorced bitter or bitter divorced women trail. Like Bonnie Hunt is a divorced women's group, and they're all just like. It's such a 1996, like, you know, men watch this movie and they're like, oh, those women are, are lesbians because they hate men. Like, it's just such a, like, bitter woman trope. Yeah. That then they're, of course, termed by Tom Cruise's, like, lovely speech at the end. I keep wanting to call him Tom Hanks, which isn't fair. Oh, because at one point I wrote down the note, they're padding Tom Hanks's shoes. That's not what I meant. They padded Tom Cruise's shoes for sure. Because, oh, taller. They always do that. Okay, but it was like glaringly obvious to me in this movie. And they, because they keep making references to Cuba Gooding Jr. being too small to be a football player, to which when I was saying this yesterday, my friend George was like, he's not too small to be a wide receiver. Like they can be, they can be smaller dudes. Um, but they keep making references because I think Cuba Gooding Jr. is 5'10 and therefore like because Cuba Gooding Jr. is not the professional football player, he's an actor. They want to refer to the fact that they hired an actor to play right. this. So they keep talking about how small he is. But Tom Cruise is his height. They're the same height. They walk around being the same height. Whereas what you could have done if Tom Cruise, I suspect, wasn't so self-conscious about his height, was have Cuba Gooding Jr. be 5'10", have Tom Cruise be 5'6", and then Cuba Gooding Jr. would appear to be bigger than Tom Cruise. And you would believe him as a football player and the smaller guy as, a man, as his agent. Instead, they have them be the same height, which just is a giant. It's like, so this football player is 5'6", or am I to buy that Tom Cruise is 5'10"? Like, right. Like, just let that man be the height he is. Yeah. He still dates and marries very tall women. Because he's a... Also, like Renee Zellweger, I think is short too. Like it just, it was just like, it was like so obvious that I'm like, oh, this is just a man with a deep level of self-consciousness about his height. That's always been true. I mean, that man, like he's always, there's always lifts and issues. I know, but having him walk and be the same height as Cuba Gooding Jr. It was just like, I know Cuba Gooding Jr. is not 5'6". And I know Tom Cruise is not 5'10". There's also like, there's an interesting undercurrent that again, doesn't really get flushed out super well, but in particularly in the beginning when Jerry is trying to win Rod as a client, like there's an interesting undercurrent about the way that like black talent, athletic talent is commodified. Thank you. You're there. Um, And like Rod and Marcy are acutely aware of that and, and are, and that's part of why they are, you know, insisting on a particular value or insisting on a particular contract is they like understand the ways in which like these white sports agents and these white NFL owners are treating Rod as a product. Um, And that's an, I think 
interesting like thing to explore that's really not very well like flushed out or unpacked in this movie like it's kind of hinted at but and so I guess I appreciate that but like I really again like I think if this movie wasn't trying to do so much it could have explored some interesting things a little bit better it's also like I bet Cameron Crowe had an awareness of it without sort of in his white manhood knowing how to fully unpack it in the way that like a black person would understand more it's one of those instances of like did you could he have brought in someone to help flush out that storyline mm-hmm. <laughs> to better talk about because i think you're right i think there's like a hinting of like we are treated differently than the white players and you want to make a lot of money off of my talent without looking at me as a human being um that cameron crow i think in a way a lot of white people have is like an understanding of it without fully knowing how to talk about the nuances of it and Mm -hmm. without having experienced it. I will say like one of the things I like about this movie is that Rod and Marcy are three, they are full characters with full lives, wants, needs, and dreams. And they're so, I mean, obviously I think all movies can do better race wise, but like, there is a level of like, okay, we're, we're treating these characters. The movie is not treating those characters like they are simply a commodity. They have hopes and needs and dreams and wants, and they achieve them certainly with the partnership of the white main character. But, but Cuba Gooding Jr. is a football hero and Tom Cruise can't help him be a good football player. He just is. And they have a good, loving, full marriage. Um, yeah. I like, like, I liked those two characters. I wanted, I just like, yeah, give me the Rod and Marcy definitely, story. And like, I think this is due to the writing. I, I think it's also in large part due to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s performance, but there is a worse version of this where he is a caricature of like mm-hmm. a black football player. And there are elements of that, but then he is also humanized and, and the sort of like more over the top parts of him feel much more like grounded and genuine in like who he is as a real person and that he is based on on something genuine and real because of the moments of humanity and groundedness that we see from him and um anxiety like you see him I had a a writer a black writer say something recently like they feel like the sort of pendulum swing of black characters in tv is like now we don't want to give black characters any flaws because we want like we don't want to be perceived as writing racistly so we write them like perfect you like this like perfect black person who can do no wrong and the reality is like you write a character write a fully fleshed out character and rod has flaws and he is arrogant and he is not a team player and he also has a lot of love and he has anxiety and you get that all of that instead of just being like here's this arrogant football player it all comes from his own anxiety and insecurities and so he feels like a real person and the fact that he's probably been treated like a commodity you know as a as a black football player he probably has been treated a certain way and so he's expecting some return on that and so it all feels like it's coming from a real place. Yes. Yeah. They allow the character to be flawed, but also uh, interesting and good. And even like to a lesser extent, partially because she's not as important of a character and also partially because uh, 
she's a woman, but even Marcy, like there's a level of which the worst written version of that character was just like uh, angry black wife. And instead you get to see that like her, her, it's her anxiety. She wants her husband to be treated respectfully and treated like a human being. And she also, and she's trying to do the best for her family. And she clearly loves, like she has so many more layers than just like, right. What I think the simplistic version of this would be, which would be laying on a stereotype of an angry black woman, which again is a little bit there, but then you're all, you also get this like full character that you understand where her anger and anxieties come from. And she's still an interesting, likable person. Right. Yeah. I will. I did write. I don't remember if I said this at the beginning or before we were recording, but Bruce Springsteen, a Bruce, any Bruce Springsteen song will trick me into loving a movie. You could give me the worst relationship I've ever seen on film and put Secret Garden underneath it. And I'd be like, okay, yeah. Yeah. This is a beautiful song written by a beautiful man. Yeah. Yeah. The Secret Garden does do a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. He's one of our greatest American musicians for a reason. Um, Anna's butt is cute. There's a website where it's just like old pictures of Bruce Springsteen in jeans. <laughs> it's a very good website. <laughs> um, her babysitter does a lot of explaining of jazz. He's just sort of like, there's a lot of, there's a, he's like, he's like, tries to explain jazz to, and I was like, dude, we were still in the era of like white guys explaining jazz to other people. Yeah. The babysitter is a ridiculous human being. But I think intentionally so. Yes. Um, I did write down the note, uh, we are all disposable under capitalism. And I don't know what I was referring to, but I do think that's important to always. <laughs> like what? I, like maybe, because maybe when he was getting fired, I can't even really tell. Maybe it was just a thought I had. <laughs> You're like, this is completely unrelated, but something I need to write down at this moment. So I think it was like, he's supposed to be this great sports agent um, and such, and like have helped found this company and yet uh, gets fired, like, right. Because they're going to make money. So I do think it had a kernel of something, but I also just think I was like, I have worked two 72 hour weeks in a row. So I also think it was maybe my brain being like, we're all disposable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's also a weird thing where like his mentor that's never really explained is like his mentor is giving him his like rules, his dead mentor, maybe you see like old shots of him giving his like rules of the business and then how it relates to the story. But I'm like, could we have done this in lieu of the voiceover in the beginning? Did we need this at all? Could we instead have given two more lines to that guy? So we didn't have to hear the line. Hey, college buddy. Right. Yeah, I just think We're the setup much. of the movie is weird. Like maybe, like I just really feel like the the memo and the breakdown needed to have come just like ten minutes later. Even yeah, set us up a little bit better. Yeah, uh, we had an Alexander Wentworth cameo, which is always interesting. To me. She's the blonde that he's sitting next to on the airplane. She's um, George Stephanopoulos's wife and Mariska Hargitay's best friend. So Regina King is pregnant in this movie. And so based on her pregnancy, this movie takes place over like three, four months. We, we meet, fall in love, get married, break up, get back together. All in the time span where Regina King is visibly pregnant. Oh, I did not put that together. But yeah, that's probably exactly right. I feel like we needed to have given this movie a good year. Yeah. 
And, and there's an extent to which it feels like it because it's kind of long. Like it feels like we're spending more time, but you're right. The pregnancy is like a good marker for the fact that we're not. Also, her pregnant belly doesn't really grow. She's just like, okay, she's pregnant. And then at one point she gives birth. Right. And then, so for like the last 20 minutes of the movie, she has what is very clearly a baby doll, like an yeah, like unmoving nothing. child. Yeah. Um. So sure, but that means this movie has taken place over a month and a half. It's too quick. It's all yeah. too quick. Yeah. Yeah, even that would be like a small edit that I think would help a little bit is like if we just made it more time. Also, uh, not to get, I mean, on this week of all weeks, but like a man wrote this movie and men don't understand how gestation works. True. He was just like, you get pregnant and then like have a belly and then have the baby. So you just like have a belly for nine months because at six weeks, women know and are visibly pregnant. I've veered into a different thing I'm angry about, but you get it. Right. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts? No, I probably won't watch it again. I might, except that it takes like two and a half hours of my life. I was going to say when you have a spare three hours. Right. And one half hour of Jerry O'Connell. But I did enjoy it, particularly the scenes. You know, the scenes we've talked about, the the scenes between Tom Cruise and Cooper Gooding Jr. And the stuff with Cooper Gooding Jr. and Regina King. Like there, there is some really kind of great stuff here that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Wild to me that when this movie was made, neither Regina King or Renee Zellweger were were very well actresses. Yeah, I know. Well, crazy. Like what? Twenty five years will do. Shut up. Twenty five years. Fuck. You're right. And I think rightfully so. They both deserve like the kudos they've gotten. They are both fantastic. They're doing very different things in this movie, but they are both really quite good next week we will be joined by friends of the pod the gossip girls to talk about just friends where can people find us in the meantime you can find us on instagram at hold underscore up underscore pod and on twitter at hold underscore up underscore podcast and wherever you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can rate review and subscribe anything else carrie oh okay bye (laughs) sorry (laughs) She has nothing else. We're done.